Hey there, welcome to night school. I'm doing two nights in a row, doing late night, close to bedtime. I'd say tonight it's actually past my bedtime. I'm exhausted, but I have two reasons for doing another episode here. Uh, One is that I did a mobile episode earlier about current events. It got a little bit, got very current eventy. It was a very current eventy episode, but near the end, I was just about to talk about another topic when I got a phone call. I think it's the first time the pulsing vibration of my phone was heard, which is interesting because I was recording into my phone, but the pulsing vibration of a phone call cut through. And it was perfect timing, though, because it was just as I said I was going to move on to another topic that was completely unrelated. And so I I feel like it was perfect that I got not interrupted. You know, a a friend, a, a phone call from a friend is never an interruption. Uh, but it got, uh, it was an intermission. An internal mission? It was an internal mission. But I also, I'm doing a little audio test here. I'm testing out how some new equipment works. Um, some new equipment, that just sounds fancy, saying equipment. Equipment. Oh, some equipment for your internal mission? Everything in the world is equipment for your internal mission. But yeah, so it was a dual-purpose late-night episode, both a test, an audio test, as well as a continuation. And what I was going to talk about earlier was what I was going to get into before the phone call, before the infamous pulsating sound of my vibrating phone, was uh, the way that the language of technology has changed. And, you know, the very first Every Night to School Night, the original Every Night to School Night pseudo-radio show, I talked about, you know, the use of baby language, the move toward baby language. Google's the most famous example, Lady Google. Lady Goggle, Google, Lady Goggle. Um, Lady Google, as I call that scary company and uh, you know but the use of baby language was something we kind of saw develop where companies started to adopt these kind of silly sounding words and I know a Google is something I know the definite I know it has a definition isn't it like a, a number I, <laughs> I don't even know is it a number I think isn't it I'm gonna use my I'm gonna use my one of my rare lifelines because I'm actually interested in uh, what a Google is, which is the, the dumbest l- use of a lifeline I've ever used. Oh, and this, this is how insane things are, is that if you look up Google in the dictionary, it gives you the definition of, like, to Google something. Like, it gives you, like, what was once a colloquial term, like, Google that. It says, search for information about someone or something on the Internet using the search engine Google. Okay, but I, I found more information. It is a mathematical term, so I was I was right. I was so right. I, I've never. I, w- I would have been happy if I was wrong there. I would have been happy if Google was just like a baby nonsense word. But the point is, it sounds like that, and most people have never thought about the word Google. And uh, there was something too. When I was in college, we had to use some sort of online. I don't even know what to call it. It was kind of like a forum 
where the people in my class could discuss things. You could also upload your papers there. Uh, we had this chat room thing we would do once a week, where once a week we didn't have to come into class. We could participate in this sort of like book discussion through a chat room. But the software we used, or it wasn't even software, it was just some sort of a portal. It was a portal that we log into for our internal mission. No, it was it was some sort of like online portal, as they called them. And it was called Moodle, M-O-O-D-L-E. I don't know if other people who were in college in the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, I don't know if they had to use that for anything. But it was like coming on the heels of Google. Moodle was coming on the heels of Google. And just me saying that, you know, I'm just descending into baby language right there. But I noticed some of the language, some of the names of companies were kind of getting kind of goofy. They sounded like baby words. And I found that incredibly sinister the moment I noticed a trend. And I can't even think of other examples now. But I did notice a trend of it where like some of the language that was getting... I mean, even even something like app. That's not baby language, but it's still... It's like this one syllable. Like, I, you know, they were always called programs. Programs. You know, everything was called Programs. Or, or people would say the full application. And then at some point, I guess it was when things became mobile, you started to hear just app, app. And so there's this kind of simplification of the language, this kind of silly language. But the reason why it was sinister to me is it coincided with the digital world becoming more dominant. It coincided with more centralization, both of companies as well as, you know, the way that you log in. And the reason I'm thinking about this in particular today, the reason I wanted to go into this, the reason why I'm actually doing a test, this is all related. Me wanting to do an audio test and me wanting to talk about this earlier is all related because I got a new laptop and I made it a point for years not to link accounts you know, I didn't, I didn't link my Google account to this, and then Google started to consume everything. And it, whether you wanted it to or not, your lady Google account, your, your, your YouTube account became a lady Google account. You didn't, really, you didn't have any choice in it. It just became that. And that, that's happened down the board with all kinds of things. And that's, you know, the most easy way to understand centralization of the user where you are a single user now whereas before you were kind of fractured and like there was something beautiful about that chaos of, of having to know passwords having to like change your passwords all the time because you forget them having to log in in these different places in these different ways when you wanted to use different services and then the centralization where it's like you now are centralized because you have one account that logs you into everything and the companies themselves have become increasingly centralized. Like I had this thought a few years ago where I realized I don't go to that many websites. Even though this, even though the internet should have expanded and if you think about it, like you, you think that as the internet becomes more commonplace, as more people are using it, as it you know serves a vital role in all kinds of ways that I didn't even expect. 
I would have expected the internet to expand and there to be, I, I, would, I would think that I would be going to more, I, I, I should be going to millions of websites a day. But you go to like three. Most people probably go to two. You know what I mean? Most people probably only go to like two or three websites a day. They get everything they need through those. And I mean, I still have some weird niche interests. Like I still go to a mafia message board where it's just a bunch of, you know, researchers. There's a couple of guys who used to be involved in, you know, organized crime even who have made their way on there. Um, but I still go to, a, you know, an old mafia forum and a few places like that. You know, I still have some places I go to. But those things are uh, almost antiques at this point, as far as websites go. Like logging into a forum, an old forum, that's still active. You know, it's, it's almost like people, it's, it's almost like we're Civil War reenactors or something. Getting on a message board and actually talking to people, sharing information. But I like that decentralization. I like that, I can tell you what, the, the Mafia forum I go to doesn't ask me to log in with a Google account. It doesn't it doesn't even know who Lady Google is. You wouldn't you don't even see a single reference to Lady Google on the entire site. I like that. But I, I realized that years ago, like the things were becoming centralized because you only go to a few sites. Like it used to be you you get, if you get on the internet, you're going all over. You're cruising all over the place. You're going to all kinds of places to get all kinds of different information. But now it's just becoming incredibly centralized. And that's both I mean, a lot of it's by design, because it wouldn't have happened if somebody didn't purposely do that and I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way I just mean companies buying companies companies teaming up I don't even know all the reasons I don't I don't really pay attention to that stuff I don't pay attention to like acquisitions I just know that suddenly I'll go to a site and it's clear they've been bought out it's clear they've been you know synced up in some way with another company and I knew it was immediately sinister because, you know, the language got simpler. Things got down to one syllable, or if there were multiple syllables, they were words like Google, Google Lady Google. And uh, I just found it all sinister. And, I, you know, I once said, you know, it's like the... I don't remember what I said. I don't remember my exact quote. I quote myself enough on here, but something to the effect of like Big Brother isn't going to come in the form of like some like scary Skynet type thing. It's going to be in rainbow letters. And, you know, I was I was referring to Lady Google, of course. I, this was this was not pre Google. This was post Google, actually mid Google. Where it's like, you know, of course, the, the something that is actually scarily powerful and knows everything you're doing is going to present itself in rainbow colors. Of course it is. Why would they want to intimidate you? They already have so much power. You know, it, it's for the same reason that somebody who is truly scary, like let's go, like since I was talking about the mafia, it's like, a real mafioso doesn't have to show you he's a mafioso. Somebody who, who wants people to think they're a mafioso is going to act like it. They're going to play the role. They're going to LARP a little bit. They're going to be like a Civil War reenactor. 
And uh, it's the same thing, I think, for any kind of power, where power doesn't have to present itself as power. And if it's smart, it doesn't. It's bubbly rainbow letters with these modern cartoon graphics that are so awful. It's just a matter of taste and aesthetics, but like those Google cartoons, I don't want this to be just some like rant against Lady Google. That's not what this episode is about, although that's part of it. But I think there's there's something sinister about the art style they use, which you see everywhere. You see that same art style, and you know I'm not the first person to notice it. I've seen other people point out that it often has characters with smaller heads and big bodies, like big legs. It's a weird way to portray human beings. And I mean, I'm an art, I'm a weird artist myself. Like I draw all kinds of weird shaped people and things. But there's something about this particular art style. It's like uh, you took the characters from It's a Small World, the Disneyland ride, and you made them stare in a funhouse mirror. And then you decided that all of our modern digital aesthetics should look that way. There's not even very much variety to it. Not very much variety to the aesthetic. It's you know kind of like how s- certain modern cartoons also share an aesthetic. And some things are just, it's the zeitgeist. It's, some things are just a product of their era, of course. Uh, but I, I just find that as these companies have become more, more powerful, as that power has become more centralized... They've got they've adopted this, you know, pseudo harmless sort of aesthetic. And I'm just, you know, I don't buy it. And I, you know, I never did. But setting up a new laptop today, I had to give in and, and link more accounts than I would have liked. Because how many times can you just do it the old fashioned way? You know, they make it difficult. They make it very difficult, in fact, to do it. Because it used to be you didn't even have to log into most things. You log into your emails. If you do log into a forum, you log into that. But you have so many things now that you have to log into. And they're things that you want to stay logged into. You want to stay logged into your YouTube. You want to stay logged into your social media accounts. You want to stay logged in. We want to stay logged in. We don't like it when it logs us out. It's true, though. When something logs me out, I feel a little weird. I'm worried that I'm going to not remember my, my password. But if, if everything's linked, if everything's synced, if everything's sync-linked, or all, are, all your, are all your accounts sync-linked? I thought I was tired. This, this show is a drug because I can be exhausted. I can be utterly exhausted, whether it's in the morning from a lack of sleep, whether it's late at night because late at night because I need to go to sleep. I start doing this show and I suddenly have all this energy. Um, but uh, got to get everything sync linked. Oh, is everything sync linked up? Because uh, you know, because if it's not, you know, you get logged out of something and you got to do a little work to get logged back in. Can't remember everything. But setting up a new laptop, I was just like, you know, I've just got to give in and, and allow some more of these, th- got to link some of these, sync link some of these things up. And then the other one thing I want to add before I forget it is like, in addition to this sort of aesthetic that I'm talking about, and, you know, I think uh, Lady Google has been, I mean, along with being the internet of the last 15 years, 
basically taking the entire thing over. They've really, you know, set the tone as far as imagery goes. And that's why I bring up, like, the way their little cartoons look. The way their logo looks. Rainbow colors. Colors. It's not cold and inhuman and robotic. We're using uh, all the primary colors, baby. Don't you love those primary colors? While we know everything about you. While we get you all sync linked up. (laughs) Sounds perverse. Uh, But something else I wanted to mention too is the language. Because the language is a big part of this as well. Because I started to notice this. When you go to like some site that, you know, it's offering some service you need to use. And they say, howdy. And I think I first noticed that with 404 pages. Where you'd go to a 404 page you know, like when there's a missing page and it tells you, like, this page can't be found. And it used to be something where it was almost, you know, it was almost clinical. It was just like 404, page can't be found. Just a simple description of, and you know, it's not like you were looking for something else. Or, or rather, it's it's not like you needed something beyond that. It's not like you needed any more information. But people started getting clever with the 404 pages where it was like, oops, I... Uh, that page must be lost in the, the, the cheese factory. You know, people got goofy because the sense of humor, you know, was very kind of like phony off the wall. I don't know. Nobody ever said cheese factory. My dad ran a cheese factory. My dad ran a cheese factory. He did. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where the language started to get howdy. Um, that's a big one. I, there's some big company that uses Howdy. But they started to use this kind of goofy... I mean, language that nobody who wrote that would use themselves in their personal life. And if they did, they'd, they'd come into the office and use it ironically and you'd want to punch them. But a lot of the language started to become that way. This kind of like pseudo-colloquial people... What they thought is like people talk... Even though you're filling out an automated form, we're going to make it sound like it's some kind of like, you know, colloquial way of talking. Howdy. Howdy. Oops, you didn't include your email address. That's okay. Things like that. That's okay. Talking to you like you're a child, too. Like a lot of the language, it goes along with the baby talk that I'm, I'm talking about, where it's like things talking to you like you're a child. And I feel like this all went hand in hand. And I'm not saying this was all done by design to hide the true nefarious intent of these companies. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm, I think, you know, it's one of my favorite quotes I, I mention a lot. But Zbigniew Brzezinski, whatever his name is, I always forget his freaking name. But I remember his quote, you know, which is that history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And I think that's true for much of what's happened with the digital world, with the internet and all these things. I, I do think that some of us, just the the chaos of it. And inevitably, you know, things get centralized. You know, centralization happens. Workers get unionized. Services get centralized. 
We have a post office. We have a centralized way of distributing mail, of sending and receiving mail in the flesh. We're not just paying random private companies, although we are. I mean, there's UPS, there's FedEx, FedEx. But still, it's very centralized, obviously. But then, but I mean, that's the government. The government did that. In this case, things have become centralized, but it's not the government doing it. And as cynical as I can be about the government, I almost find something more suspicious about the fact that all of this has happened by allegedly private companies. You know, it's been these allegedly private companies, one in particular taking control of everything. But when I first started to see that language, when I first started to see this kind of like otherwise professional companies, big companies that you basically have to use, when I started to see them use words like howdy when you're filling out a form, I was like, this is not good. This is not good. And I I had an experience a month ago when I was redesigning my site, which was, you know, I decided, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put a CAPTCHA form, which that word alone, CAPTCHA, that's another example of what I mean of this, just, it's like this diminutive language app, CAPTCHA, CAPTCHA. Like the fact that that's even a word everybody knows now sucks. It sucks that everybody knows that and that that's a word, a stupid sounding, I guess, corruption of capture. I don't even know what it is. But just the fact that that's a word that everybody has in their brains, because I mean, stupid sounding words just bother me forever. I never really get over a stupid sounding word. I mean, there's words that are well ingrained in our society that I still try to avoid using. And I'm not going to give examples because I want to avoid using them. I want to I want to protest the use of certain words, but yet I'll say CAPTCHA. But I was going to install a CAPTCHA for a form on my site. And I didn't know that Google controlled all those. I assumed that it was just some simple code, some independent code you could implement or that there were many different versions of it by many different creators like maybe some some open you know some sort of like open source code you could just copy and paste and maybe reconfigure it yourself but I didn't know that CAPTCHA is actually a Google owned like that same CAPTCHA form that you use on everything and it, and it has some variations but it's all it's again centralized. It's run by the same company. I didn't know that you have to submit like information about your website and Google can actually track Lady Google. She can actually track who submits your forms. Like you have to use their code and you have to like submit data about your website to them. You have to submit information about your website to them in order to use a CAPTCHA. So every time you submit a form of any kind that requires CAPTCHA authentication, authentication, I can't remember what, uh, it sends data to Lady Google that blew my mind. I couldn't actually get it to work. I was going to use it. I, I submitted some data or I submitted uh, some information about my website to them so I could use it, but I couldn't get it to work for some reason, which is for the best. Because that creeps me out. That means that Lady Google knows every time you submit a form or sign up with an account that uses CAPTCHA authentication, 
that doesn't sound right. Authentication, authentication. I don't know which it is. Uh, either way, you know what I'm saying. I might maybe it's another word. I don't know. The more you think about a word, the more you just feel so detached from it. Uh, the more you the more you think about language, the more language just leaves your brain. You know, you no longer know what you're saying. But it's just creepy to me. I had no idea. Even though I've worked in that field, you know, and, and everything, I had no idea that Google, Lady Google, had her hands wrapped around any form that uses a CAPTCHA to submit it. So they know who you're sending messages to. And it's not like I think there's somebody who's going through and reviewing this. Like, again, I don't want to get conspiratorial about it, but it's just a simple fact that they have access to this. They know this. And I didn't know. I didn't know that that was run through them as well. And so you just learn these things, and you're like, man, everything is truly... All lines run through them at this point. And there's not even any point. I mean, it's a totally fruitless effort to like try to criticize them. I don't, I'm not even trying to make any large point here or say there's anything you can do or should do, because there's nothing you can do. And while all this has been going on, you've also seen pe- people really don't worry about being spied on anymore. That used to be a huge topic of conversation, even among normal people, especially among normal people. Where people would be like, you know, I, I just don't want uh, to get spied on. People were concerned about government surveillance. People were worried about private companies. <laughs> worried about private companies using their data, knowing what they're doing. At some point, people just stopped caring. It's like, yeah, there are some people who actually care about what Edward Snowden revealed. There are people who care when there's like a whistleblower a tech whistleblower, a government whistleblower, whistleblower. There's people, but it's kind of like a weird niche interest when someone actually cares about that anymore. It's like, oh, Edward Snowden is on this podcast, and uh, you just listen to it, though, almost like an intellectual exercise. It's just like ideas to think about. Because at this point, you've just given up. And it's like, it kind of went, it goes hand in hand when people don't, care about you know surveillance out and about anymore like people don't care that there are surveillance cameras like I had a girlfriend who had all these she wasn't even weird she was a pretty normal girl and she didn't like the fact that there were traffic cameras like she didn't like the fact that stoplights had traffic cameras and she had some rationale for it and I didn't like it either but it was interesting because she had some sort of normal rationale like, not that she was concerned about government spying or anything like that. She had some sort of, she was like, oh, people, she had some rationale, like, that was, like, about how, like, people can use that in divorce <laughs> cases to show that, like, a significant other was cheating. And I was just like, she, I don't think she, if she cheated on me, it was at the very end of our relationship. I don't think she actively cheated on me, but it was really weird that she had that take where it's like they can use surveillance from traffic cameras to show that you were cheating on your significant other, and then they can use that in divorce and paternity cases. There's probably something she read. Probably something she read at some point. I don't know. But you used to hear people talk about that, is my point. You used to hear people like talk about the fact that there are surveillance cameras everywhere. And then that disappeared. And that disappeared when everybody had their own little surveillance camera in the form of a phone. Their nature phone. It's been a while since I used that term. They, their nature phone. 
At this point, phones are nature. So call it what it is. It's a nature phone, not a smartphone, not a cell phone. It's a nature phone. But as soon as people started not only just having that tool available, but just holding it up to each other's faces every time they do anything. Like anytime someone does something that you find disagreeable, weird, consent doesn't even matter. At least Candid Camera made people sign consent forms. Now someone just pulls a camera, a digital video camera, out of their pocket tapes you and they can upload it to millions of people you can never get rid of it because it's reproduced endlessly people can save it there's sites that these weird robotic sites that exist that just mirror content from other sites so it's like if a video of you comes up online or a picture or anything i mean good luck ever removing that and you didn't sign a consent form and it was one of your fellow civilians who did it who cares about the government who even cares about lady google you go to Target and you, you know your mask falls off, and you know some lady with a cell phone might come right up on you right then and, and be like, "Oh, look, it's a guy not wearing a mask," and she uploads it immediately. I mean, I've seen videos like that, not you know just where someone went into a store without a mask and somebody immediately made video of them and shared it with everybody in the world. Who cares about, like, the government hiring some agent to, like, secretly review your webcam, to secretly access your webcam when you're sitting at home with shark eyes, eating, eating peanut butter with a spoon? You know, who cares about the government agent who's hired to do that, who's hired to watch you, watch you? Who cares about that when your, your fellow civilians are doing it and with no repercussions, it seems like? seems like all these people who are constantly taking candid photos, candid video, even horrible things, pain and injury. You know, who cares about Lady Google and the government when it's your fellow civilians who are doing it? And this has all gone hand in hand with people caring less about being surveilled. surveilled. You know, it seems like we've cared less about that and then... It's us doing it. You know, we are the panopticon. You never know who's filming you. You never know who has decided to take a photo of you or tape you. And if you think you can escape it, you can't. Because even, even Google Maps is on your ass. You know, we'd be looking at Ted Kaczynski's cabin from Street View today. Probably can do that. I think it got moved. I think it's in a museum or something. It's somewhere. Imagine seeing that. I know they moved it. I don't know if they tore it down piece by piece and rebuilt it, but I know at some point I saw that that Ted Kaczynski, that his cabin had been put on display somewhere inside, which is weird. That's some weird sort of power move. It's like, we're going to take your cabin that you so proudly built in the wilderness and we're going to rebuild it indoors. Feels like a, an adding insult to the injury of putting him in Supermax. But imagine seeing that getting carried down the street on a truck. Like every once in a while you'll see a house get moved on a truck. Imagine seeing Ted Kaczynski's cabin on the back of a semi-truck.
But no, there's no escape. There's no escape. Because even Street View is in front of your house, is in front of your remote cabin. I mean, not that long, like a month ago, I was cruising through the Scandinavian wilderness on there. And I love it. You know, I use, I mean, the service is unavoidable. The service is amazing that they provide. The fact that you can cruise through the Scandinavian wilderness in first-person view. Like, granted, there are roads. It's not like I'm going through the woods. But I was going through these weird remote mountain... I mean, there were barely any houses around. Just once in a while, you'd see a house, but you were winding up in the mountains in Scandinavia. And the fact that I can do that, it means there's no escape. And yeah, it, it hasn't gone everywhere. But it's like nobody can truly be a Luddite anymore and pretend that they've escaped technology. Sure, someone can. Of course, there are exceptions, but the average person, no, there's no chance. And the wealth that it would take to do that means you're already in the grid deep, baby. If you're wealthy enough to escape all of this, you're already so deep inside the grid that it doesn't matter where you go. They know so much about you. Because if you don't think they keep a lot of tabs on wealthy people, you know, I know there's this whole idea that wealthy people get off scot-free. They also have a lot of information on wealthy people. I don't know. That's just, <laughs> I'm, just I'm just guessing there. I'm, here I am. This is me being a little expert. They got all kinds of information. But really, it's true. I mean, unless, unless you're in an extremely powerful position, you can just wipe the slate. You know, chances are, you know, if you're if you're a wealthy person, there's so much information about you in the system. Even if you want to escape, even if you want to go to some remote island, they know so much about you. And, you know, I'm not worried about it. Like, I'm not saying all this to be like, oh, God, life sucks now. I'm just saying it's just how things have gone. This is just how things are. Howdy. Would you like to log into your Lady Google account and share all of the information about everything you do with everyone? I mean, even building a homepage. Like, I made it a point when I redesigned my site a month ago. I made it a point to kind of make it independent of current trends. Like, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to look good. I wanted it to look fairly good on most devices to be somewhat, uh, what's the word, uh, I don't know, I don't even remember the buzzword, that, that, you know, to have it look good on all devices, let's just put it that way. You know, I want it to look decent. But I purposely didn't include social media or links. You know, I thought about it, and actually somebody, a, a friend of a friend, gave my friend feedback because like a friend told one of their friends about my site and he checked it out and uh, he was like it looks great but there should be social media or icons or there should be there like the contact page should have like social media or links and I thought about that of course because that's typically what you see you typically see these little icons that link you to the social media or account, accounts accounts 
And I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this completely distinct from that. If someone wants to track me down on there, it's not too hard to. But I'm, you know, this is its own site. This site exists because it's not those things. And this site has everything and more that those things could potentially offer. Like my personal homepage, my personal website for my art has more to offer on its own than anything that one of my social media or sites could ever offer. So I decided not to include. I appreciated the advice. You know, I appreciated the feedback because, you know, I appreciate any feedback. I appreciate anybody who's taken the time to, like, look at something or listen to something that I've done. But at the same time, it, that was a, a decision I made consciously. And not, not a big decision, but it was just something I decided not to do. But that said, it's not like I've escaped it. It's not like I've escaped the centralized world of the modern internet. Because how do people find your homepage? Through Lady Google. Because that's another example of the centralization where, you know, it wasn't just that you went to all these different websites for your information, for your, your entertainment. It was that you also used different search engines. And some of those search engines gave you different results, which was interesting. And part of that was because people, there was a period where you had to manually submit your site to search engines. Very early on, I remember that was the case. I think they probably managed to crawl. They probably did a little bit of crawling. But still, the only surefire way at a certain point in time to getting your website listed on a search engine was to submit them individually to each one. Submit it to Lycus. Submit it to, you know, all the... I could go down the list. I could go down and have a fun time with search engine nostalgia here. To Yahoo. Submit it to Yahoo. What the hell are you saying? Yahoo. <laughs> um, submit it to all of them. And, uh, you know, now that's no longer the case. You got this one that you use... And it crawls everything, unless you put a little bit of code in your page that, that says not to crawl it, not to add it, unless you no-index it, as it's called. But even then, it knows it's there. Nothing escapes the big old heavy eyelashed mascara-wearing eye of Lady Google. Nothing escapes that eye. And uh, so it's like, even if you make a personal homepage, it's like, oh, here's an island unto itself, away from all the modern centralized internet. It's like, no, that's no escape. It's still a part of all of it. It's still a part of all of it. And, and uniformity, too. You know, I talked about this not that long ago when I did I did a, a website design critique episode. I talked about how you, you see more uniformity in design now, too, even though more options are available. And some of that's just the trends of the time. Some of it's just the product of the time. Like if you look at books from a certain era, covers tend to look alike. You know, that's a factor too. It's like it's like fashion. Like certain clothes look a certain way during a certain decade. So, of course, websites are going to go through that same process where it's like, yeah, people wore bell bottoms in the 70s. People... News articles had these giant, weird background images in the late 2010s. 
some of that's that, but some of it's also just increasing uniformity. And, uh, you know, all this has gone together, but it's, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I've always been an observer of this stuff. I've always been a participant. As much as I love the natural world, as much as I love the organic and the analog, I've also always been fascinated by the digital world. And even though it's not my preferred aesthetic, like I don't necessarily prefer digital aesthetics, I like, I like technology to look like technology. You know, for example, I referenced Shadowrun in a recent episode. And what I like about that early cyberpunk sort of aesthetic is that the technology looks like technology. The corporations look like scary, powerful, technological corporations. Their names sound like it. Their aesthetics show that. They're cold. But... That makes for good fiction. That makes for, you know, good fiction. But in reality, a scarily powerful technological corporation is going to try to appear harmless. They're going to have a little bird. The company that bans the president of the United States from using its services is going to be called uh, Twitter. And it's going to have a little bird, a little cartoon bird. So that's what I'm talking about. It's all the same. You know, it's not these scary, inhuman, austere. How many descriptive words can I throw in here? It's not one of these scary, austere technological companies you see in Shadowrun, Neuromancer, in these different stories, in sci-fi in general. Because people wouldn't even like that as fans. Like if Skynet, and I don't even remember what Skynet's all about, but if Skynet, isn't that Terminator? If Skynet, I'm talking about things I don't even understand. You don't even understand Skynet. I don't. Um, but no, if if Skynet looked like Google, like if the aesthetics of something like Skynet, it was like big rainbow primary color bubble letters with these weird, it's a small world cartoon, big heads, big, you know, small heads, big legs, these big weird bodies with tiny heads, you know, if they used that sort of imagery, fans wouldn't even like it. You know, and, you know, so, but, it, but in the way that that plays in reality, of course, a company with unbelievable power, unbelievable information, of course, they're not going to look scary. I mean, of course, my, this vape that I've been using is called Peach Ice Puff Flow. Not something scary. <laughs> my vape my vape is named something scary. No, but I mean and that's just a you know, another part of all this. Is you know, even your smoking devices are electronic, which I've still you know, it's become normal, but I you know, I still haven't completely wrapped my brain around it. 
but the you know the aesthetics is a big thing because you know aesthetics are the one thing that we can always control. Like while we can't always control the mechanics of new technology, like we can't always control the skeleton underneath something, the code even, because the code you know code is you know kind of a skeleton. And but while we can't always control that, like of course somebody makes a decision that things work a certain way. But if if you want to look at like physical mechanics, it's like you can't necessarily control the exact way an engine looks because it has to function a certain way. But it's like you can control the aesthetics around that. And I think modern aesthetics are one of the things that maybe the only thing that really truly turns me off from modernity. I was talking to Miles about this when he called earlier, actually. You heard him call if you listened to the last episode. You heard that phone You heard it, and uh, we were talking about that, though, how a lot of this stuff for for us does come down to aesthetics, and I'm not a fan, you know, I think that's the thing, is like, I don't reject the digital world, but I, I wish the aesthetics were a little different, and I think as clunky as the various aesthetics of the internet were 20 25 years ago the fact that there was less uniformity made that clunkiness more attractive because you didn't necessarily know what you were going to see you didn't know how the information was going to be presented to you whereas when's the last time you were surprised by the way something looked digitally when's the last time that whether it was something a device you bought whether it was a phone whether it was anything when's the last time you were truly surprised because those things used to be very surprising. And maybe maybe it's just me. You know, maybe I'm not checking out all the latest stuff because I certainly don't. But it doesn't seem to be surprising at all. And I think the element of surprise is important to this stuff. I think technology should be visually surprising. But it's like whether you go to a website, whether you, you know, you buy a device, everything, you know, you kind of, the aesthetic has just been kind of molded and, you know, I, I, there's not really a, any clear indication it's going to change anytime soon. But then even within it, you know, even within websites, within all of that, you'll see the cartoons that I'm talking about, the illustrations. I don't even know what to call them. You see a lot of uniformity with that. And I don't feel like I'm just, you know, complaining for the sake of complaining. I don't, you know, I feel like... I try to have a constructive approach about this stuff. I try to use this stuff the way I think it should be used. And whether that makes any difference at all doesn't matter. It at least makes me feel like I'm participating in a more natural process than I would otherwise. Oh, and uniformity of humor, too. I mean, that's another thing. Is The Internet used to be the Wild West, and I, I really don't want this to come across as like, Oh, in the old days, when you had to submit different websites to search engines, and everybody had different jokes, but there's truth to it, and, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of funny stuff, I used to laugh a lot more, maybe that's just my own personal road, you know, maybe I just laugh less in general, but still, it's like, I guess it goes back to surprise, like the aesthetics used to be more surprising, 
I, I feel like I used to be more surprised by humor. And now there's this sort of like uniformity in not just the language that companies use. I got to stop using the word uniformity. I'm becoming very uniform with my use of the word uniformity. But I guess it all just feels very established. Like there's an established way to communicate humor as an adult online. And most of the humor is very similar. It's almost all the same. And I'm not going to tell anybody what's funny or what's not funny because I don't expect anybody to find, you know, what I find funny, funny. There's a tongue twister. A brain twister. But I, I do wish that things were more compartmentalized. I do wish things were more fractured. Because I think good things come from that. And I don't think it's necessary. I think that's the other thing. Like, when... The Postal Service gets controlled by the government and centralized. That makes sense to me. That's a very specific service that needs to be streamlined and needs to be consistent. I don't think that's true for the digital world. Well, some aspects of it do, and I think were back then. I think many of these things were already fairly streamlined and fairly consistent even many years ago. But as things have become, you know, boxed in, things have got, they're all in the same box. It's all like, it's a nesting doll. The digital world has become this weird nesting doll where everything fits inside everything else. And I think there's a lot of value to spreading it out. But I don't think you can do that now. I don't, you know, it's not going to be my campaign. It's not going to be my internal mission. Just like it's not my, you know, campaign to try to, you know, you know, change the the way, you know, it's not, it's like in the same way that like, I'm not going to try to stop surveillance. I'm not going to try to stop these things that are already well underway and people have just accepted. People have just, just accepted these things. And that's been one of the big arguments during Coronavi that I do relate to. While I've really been pretty ambivalent and maybe more indifferent when it comes to the whole masks and vaccines and all that stuff, I just don't even really have an opinion on that stuff. I don't, even, I don't have an opinion on Coronavi. I think I had it. I think I have lung damage from it. That said, it's a hoax. It's a hoax that damaged my lung, but... It's not the first hoax that's damaged me. I've been damaged by many hoaxes in my life. But no, really, I don't. I just haven't. I've chosen not to have an opinion on it. Maybe I haven't even chosen it. I just don't really have much of an opinion on it. But one of the arguments that I do relate to is the idea that people are going to start to accept things. They're going to start to accept government regulations of our behavior as a new normal. And it's going to be very difficult to push it back to where it was at before. Because you see where people became little police forces. They're little experts, they're little politicians, and they're little police forces where they'll tell you what you should be doing. And they'll tell you that you're killing people. 
you're killing people. I mean, I was talking to my friend last night, or maybe it was even today, I don't even know. Uh, I was talking to my friend Anna about it, where I was saying, you know, think about this. For the last year, and especially early on in all of this, people were being told, you need to fear death. Imminent death. Imminent, painful death without your family able to see you. And not just you, you sh- not just you fearing your own death, but you should fear killing other people. And if you're not afraid of killing other people, well, you're more likely to kill people. That's, that's the actual logic that people are pushing on each other. And I understand it. It's not that I don't understand why people were saying that. But the fact that that was a common, and maybe still is, a common talking point for this amount of time... It's not good for people. And there's been no conversation about death. There's been no healthy conversations, no healthy national conversations. I don't know about the rest of the world. But there's been no healthy conversation about accepting death. Of course, you should try to avoid it. I want to live. I like life. I want to live. I love life. I want to live. But uh, I can also accept death if it comes. I have to. I don't have a choice. What argument could I possibly make in the face of death when it finally comes? And the fact that that hasn't been a part, like, it's like, yeah, we should avoid, we should try not to spread coronavirus because it'll kill you. But there's been no conversation about what if it does kill you? Should you die terrified? Should you be fighting? I mean, you might not. I don't. I don't know how aware people are who have died of it. I don't know what kind of mental condition they're in when they die. But it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what condition you are you're in at the moment of death. I mean, it's one of the reasons why. I found peace immediately with my mom's death because I knew that she had lived a life, one that she could be proud of. I know that she loved life as much as she possibly could with the resources that were available to her. But I also had many conversations going back to my childhood about death with her. Even when I didn't want to have them, she would talk about how, hey, when I go, it's my time to go. And when you're five years old, you don't want to hear your mom talking about the prospect of dying. But when you're 34 years old, 33, I I don't even know how old I was when my mom died. I guess I was about to turn 34. Um, But, you know, when you're 33 years old, you look back and you're like, hey, I'm really glad my mom talked about death beginning pretty much as, as, as far back as I can remember. Not like she was morbid and she was talking about death all the time. Hey, kid. Hey, son. Let's talk about my death again. No, it's not like she was sick about it. Uh, It's just, uh, you know, from the time I was a kid, she would make casual comments. And, you know, as I got older over the years, we would have philosophical conversations about death. And I would say that 
while they weren't directly spiritual in nature, they were definitely spiritual conversations, because how can you have a conversation about death that isn't spiritual? Well, I'll give you a great example of a conversation about death that isn't spiritual, and it's if you leave the house and you make the tiniest mistake, you're going to kill somebody. And not just one person, but you're probably going to kill like 30 people because it spreads, and then you might die. That is a conversation about death that is devoid of spiritual context. To just be fear-mongering. Not that you shouldn't be telling people to be as cautious as possible. Not even that the government shouldn't require masks in stores. Whatever it is that it's done, you know, whatever measures it's put in place. I'm not even saying they shouldn't have done that. I'm simply saying the conversation that people have had and the fact that the national conversation has been the worst. That's why. That's how you know we don't have true leadership. The reason you know we don't have true leadership is because there's been no national conversation about how to even accept the reality of death. Something that will come. You know, something that we know will happen one way or another. And, um, I don't know. All I can do is express myself. Because it's, again, one of those things. that I'm not looking to tell anybody else what to do. I know that I'm not going to change anything. But in the same way that my approach to the Internet, to devices, to phones, to the nature phone, my approach to that is I want to use this in a way that doesn't make me feel unclean. I want to use this in a way that feels sincere and natural to me. Even if I puff my chest out a little bit, guess what? I do that in real life too. You know? I, uh, and it's easy come, easy go. Some days you check it, some days you check your social media or accounts, you know, many times a day, all day. Sometimes you go two weeks without looking at it. At least that's what it's like for me. Easy come, easy go with that stuff. And I don't, I don't form an opinion where I'm not... You know, it's not unlike my gun argument that I mentioned in the episode earlier, where it's like, I'm not anti-social meteor or pro-social meteor. There's no getting rid of it now. Unless some dictatorial government takes over and they say, we've decided that social media is bad and we're going to ban it. Unless that happens, you know, it, it's around for the long haul one way or another. So I don't see the reason to have some extreme opinion one way or another. It's a useful tool. I like that I can stay in touch with certain people. I like that I can talk to certain people. That I wouldn't otherwise. I like that I can express myself in certain ways that is unique to that device or that format or that service. But it's easy come, easy go. I'm not too attached to it either. But it's a reality. And I'm nothing I do is gonna remove it. It's not gonna cause it to just cease to exist.
When's this vape pen going to run out? That's what I'm wondering. I don't know. It's not even a pen. We smoke our pens and we... Uh, we type into our phones. Just the world we're in. But... Uh, Yeah, I have another thought coming. <laughs> I have another thought coming. I guess going back to that idea of death, where it's just it's always a disservice to life because it's not about death itself. It's it's always a disservice to life when you create a hysteria that doesn't allow people to even enjoy their lives as much as they could or should. To make people so afraid of death that they can't even enjoy their lives. Because there's enough reason to be afraid anyway. There's enough reason to fear death anyway. It's not that I'm not afraid of death. I'm, I, I, I am afraid. Of, I, I, I am afraid of death. You know? It's not like I'm pretending I'm not afraid of death. It's that same exact scenario I talk about. Ego death. spiritual materialism where the second you think that your ego is dead the second you think you've experienced an ego death your ego blows up even bigger by even thinking you had an ego death the second you think that you're free of all material attachments is the second that that very thought becomes a whole new attachment the second you think you're no longer afraid of death Something is going to scare the heck out of you. And why are you scared? If you're not afraid of death, why are you scared of anything? If you're not afraid of death, you shouldn't be scared of anything. I mean, it's not, it's not really true. It's not really fair. I mean, because you can be scared of being maimed. You can be scared of losing someone. You can be scared of losing something. But a lot of it does revolve around survival. But the second you think that... I guess a better way to put it would be the second you think you're no longer afraid of death, something is going to scare you to death. So you should never think that you can escape that feeling. But you can't accept the inevitability of it. I mean, here we go. I'm not pro-death. I'm not anti-death. I'm just death. And... uh what to say beyond that? Some tech talk. This is a late night episode of some tech talk. Because I do like to get into that. I've been hesitant sometimes in the past to do too much of it. But now and again I like to comment on the digital world. To offer a little critique. Because I think it needs it. Because I'm not against it. I'm certainly not against the digital world. I think it's interesting. I have friends who hate it, but they secretly use it all the time. I have friends who are hardcore materialists, physical materialists, and I'm pretty into that stuff myself, but I have friends who are hardcore materialists, but they still inevitably, they and they know. I mean, they're smart. They know. They can't escape it. They still have to use the digital world. They're still a part of it. But I do want to see it go in a different direction. 
You know, I do want to see it. You know, I do want to see the aesthetics improve at the very least. I do want to see something that is either exactly what we always expected it to be, which is that more austere cyberpunk corporate aesthetic. I would rather see that. I would rather see that kind of sleek, machine-like, intimidating sort of visual presence by corporations where we're almost, you know, you're, you're intimidated just looking at their logo. You're not even sure what it means. It's esoteric. I think that's what I'm looking for. I think I'm looking for technology to be more esoteric. Because it turns out, you know, one of the ways, one of the reasons why I do have this kind of strange acceptance of the digital world, despite all of its flaws, is that I feel like the spirit can manifest in that just as much as it can anything else in our world. As I've talked about on here before, your spirit can inhabit the device you use, the service you're using, if you do it sincerely and with meaning. If you put yourself into what you're doing in a way that honors who you are, it might not make any difference as far as like what other people think. You might not get a different result. But you're going to feel cleaner. You're going to feel cleaner about it. And that's important because we, we have so many opportunities to feel unclean. And using the digital world doesn't make me feel unclean unto itself. But I can tell you that the way I've used it before has certainly made me feel unclean. And the way I see other people using it certainly seems unclean and twisted to me. But I also see people who use it cleanly as well. You know, it's not like it's all one way. We always have a negativity bias. It's very easy to have a negativity bias, which is one reason why we sometimes let death rule over life while we are living. You know, that itself is a negativity bias. We are so worried about being negated, about having our life taken away, that we don't even value the life we are living. And that is the ultimate spiritual dilemma. That is what people are talking about when they talk about living in the moment. That is really the root of that cliche. Is being so afraid of something to come. Being so caught up in things that aren't yet here. Or things that already happened. That you can't actually experience the present moment. And what pulls you out of the present moment more than having some hysterical fear of death? Whether it's someone you love dying, or whether it's you dying, or just the the very prospect of non-existence. I mean, as I said before, I feared my mom dying most of my life more than I did in the moment that she was actually dying. 
Like climbing that mountain gave me more anxiety than actually being at the top of the mountain and knowing that she was about to die, dying, gone. Because it turns out that moment is just when you're at the very sharpest point of the mountain's peak. Death is the very sharpest point of the mountain, and you can only be there for a split second, because you sure can't stay there. You sure can't hang out there. Death is a moment. It is being at that just tiny, sharp little peak at the very top, and then they're on the other side, and you're on the other side too. When a loved one dies, they're not just on another side that you can't see, but you yourself are on the other side of something. And I used to, you know, I loved my mom so much. I love my mom so much. You know, it's not past tense, but referring to when she was alive, I loved my mom so much that I worried about her all the time. I was always worried. Not to a pathological degree. But like when I when she would tell me she was going on a road trip, when she was going on a long drive to go, you know, stay with a friend or whatever she was doing, I would worry about her. She would worry about me. It's what you do when you love someone. There's a, a certain amount of worry involved. Like if you find yourself thinking about somebody and you're like, I hope they made it home safe. You love them. Even if they're your friend or your acquaintance, that's love. Just wanting someone to like make it home safe on a drive. But when it's your mom, you know, for me personally, having, you know, when you love someone that much, you worry about them a lot. But in the actual moment of death, I wasn't worried about anything. I was seriously not worried. I mean, I wouldn't say I wasn't worried about anything. But, you know, I certainly was not worried about death because there was nothing I could do. Just like I can't argue death away from myself. I can't, when death is here in front of me, there's no argument I can make. Yeah, if I have a chance to live, I'll take it. If there's something I can do to survive, I'll take it. But if there's, if death is staring me in the face, if it is truly here, there is no argument I can make to get away from it. And the same is true for anybody else you know dying. When I was standing there in the hospital, touching my mom, and I told the nurse to unplug the, you know, to, to pull the plugs because there was nothing we could do. I was not worried about death or trying to argue death away. So that's where you want to be. Because what we've been doing for the last year is arguing with death. And that doesn't mean not being cautious. That doesn't mean not being safe. That doesn't mean maybe setting up some temporary guidelines to follow. Even if it is a hoax. Let's all role play. Let's all role play that it's a pandemic for a, a year. You know what? If you told me that, like, listen, if you told me a year ago... If some like top, if, if the head of Lady Google, who's also the head of the CIA, 
and also the president of, of the of the NWO, New World Order. It's all the same person. <laughs> uh, if he came to me, if she excuse, excuse me, if she came to me and said, "Hey, just so you know, the pandemonium pandemic is going to be fake. It's going to be a hoax." But we just want to role play for a year. Just as some, we're all really bored. We're all really bored. Let's just role play for a year that there's this crazy thing happening and we have to change everything and do things differently. But just so you know, it's a hoax, but we're going to role play. I'd be like, sure. Be like, yeah, let's role play for a year. How come we don't do that? <laughs> you know, how come we don't just role play for a year? How can we like pretend that we spend our entire lives pretending to be things, trying really hard to be certain things? We, we spend our, our lives like trying to convince other people that we're not just LARPing all the time, that we're not just role playing all the time. Why don't we as a whole group go, let's just LARP. Let's just LARP for a year. Let's convince ourselves of it. Let's convince ourselves that this is real and just LARP for a year. Because it turns out people buy into it anyway. But let's be Civil War reenactors for a year. I'm not against that. I think we could find more interesting ways to do it than this. (laughs) But I'm not against the idea of a year of LARPing. The year of the LARP. Although I feel like that pretty accurately describes the last year. Year of the LARP. Year of the role play. Oh, it's the Chinese New Year. Year of the role player. But no, I mean, uh, this has been a, it's been tech talk and death talk. A little tech talk and death talk. But I feel like those conversations should actually go hand in hand more. I feel like we should talk about technology and death hand in hand. Because it turns out they are hand in hand. Turns out technology and death go together in interesting new ways. Because when there's new technology, we sort of reconsider death. I mean, you think about the creation of the book of writing and what that did for death. The fact that we could talk about death for one, but the fact that somebody could stay alive forever, their thoughts could stay alive forever. The fact that I can read Ivanhoe for the first time in 2020. I mean, that well, that, I'll, that's a good example. That's actually a, a great example because my mom bought me Ivanhoe right before she died. And I read it after she died and I'm reading a dead man's words about a time and place that's long gone but the technology of the written word and the ability to reproduce that and keep it in publication it's not immortality I mean there will be some day when, no, when there's no more Ivanhoe There will be some day in the distant future when there's no more copies of Ivanhoe and nobody's ever heard of it. But for that time and place, 
it's still alive. And so who knows how the digital world will impact that. Because we can see how easily it can all go. We can see how easily just an account can get deleted and years of ideas are gone. I mean, whether you delete it yourself or you get banned or whatever it is, you can see where just servers fail and a website goes down. So on one hand, the digital world seems closer to immortality than any of our previous technology, especially when you bring in AI. And as more and more of people is represented online, as you have more and more accounts that are more and more centralized and it learns more and more about you, AI could be programmed to mimic you. And of course, I've talked about the the visual AI, like the Parkland shooter victim who was digitally recreated for a political campaign. You know, that kind of thing can happen. The whole deep fake thing can happen. But even just on like a message chat level, it would be very easy to, you know, if you say enough, I mean, even just with your, if you've been using Facebook for 15 years, imagine the sort of chat bot they could create based on how you typically respond, the words you typically use, how you often express yourself. Well, it might not be, you know, there might be an uncanny valley that needs to be crossed there it might get pretty close to how you actually talk to people depending on how creative you are, depending on how much you say. But at the same time, the plug can be pulled very easily. So we can see where it's like there's this, and and even beyond the whole AI thing and, you know, these things that have all this information about you kind of keeping you alive in this transhumanism sort of way, even just the idea of like a website being available forever. Like I'm talking about Ivanhoe, like still being able to read Ivanhoe in 2020. Not that that's the oldest book. I mean, I, I read the Bible too. That might be a better example. You, you didn't even choose a book that was that old. The Phantoms are they're really upset about that. Ivanhoe? That's only a few hundred years old. I don't, I don't know how old it is. Point being, it's older than any human can live. But just being able to read a very old book, whether it's an old edition or a new edition, doesn't really matter. Just the fact that you're able to read it. But still not immortality. Because, yeah, someday some of those books are going to be gone. But with a website, you think like if you put a website up, it can stay up there forever. But it's like if you if you die or you stop paying for your hosting, it goes down. And even the Internet Archive doesn't have copies of everything. There are still holes. So at this point, we can't say that anything will be permanent. But yet it does make us kind of reconsider our definitions of these things. New technology does make us reconsider our understanding of ideas like immortality, death, life, what that even actually is, communication. I mean, you can see where people have had their dead loved ones recreated in the form of AI, and they get excited. 
It's as if somebody, you know, put together a seance and channeled their dead relative. It's basically the same level of, you know, it's like the same level of of engagement, which is none. But maybe in some way it is. You know, I know this is this one. This episode is getting really out there. Uh, but you know, if somebody is excited by a digital, a digitally created representation of their dead relative, who is to say that that can't itself be some form of communication with them? While that isn't their relative and it is an illusion, who is to say that it can't facilitate something? Who is to say that that can't facilitate some kind of spiritual communication? that goes beyond the means, that goes beyond the fact that it's a living human being looking at a digital representation. Because I certainly feel something when I look at photos of my mom, and while those were photos of her while she was living, they're still not her. They're still a representation of her. So if you were to animate that photo, and I felt something, Who is to say that's not something beyond our understanding? Who is to say something is not being communicated that goes beyond my flesh, beyond the photo, beyond the digital AI? You know, who's to say something isn't going on there? I certainly can't say. So I'm not going to say that it's all nonsense. And that's that's a new thought, you know, because my initial response to that stuff, to these digitally recreated deceased loved ones is just don't do that and I still feel that way but if that makes somebody feel something and and feeling that something makes them feel connected to whatever part of that deceased loved one exists in, in the greater wholeness of life in the universe, is that a bad thing? You know, I don't think so. I mean, people talk, people write letters to their dead loved ones. Sometimes people go around their houses and still talk to their dead husbands, things like that. Is that any better or worse than talking to a chat bot that was recreated using your dead loved one's Facebook account? I don't know. It depends on where you're coming from, I think. Because I don't think I would be able to do that. I don't think I would be able to remove myself from the reality that I'm talking to a chatbot. But somebody might have felt that way about photographs when they first came to be. Somebody might have thought, yeah, the photograph, it's not really them. Yet I'm totally comfortable looking at a photograph, which is technology, and feeling a connection to somebody who's no longer here. I could go on about this forever. I got a million ideas that could come out and keep this going. And I do need to go to bed. It's getting late. It's really late. It was it was late when I started this. Uh, just, I don't know, technology and death. You know, they inform each other. This land 
God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 